This message was recorded at the Cross United Church Summer Sundays Drive-In Service during the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, so audio quality is a little bit different than usual. You can find out more about Cross United Church at Cross United SFL on social media or at crossunited.org. John 9 this morning. John 9. Before we get into the text, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak of your word, Jesus Christ, through the written word that was inspired by the Spirit, so that we might know you and love you and trust you and follow wherever you lead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John Newton wrote the most famous song in Christian history. He was infamously the captain of a slave trading ship, a man who made his money by destroying the lives, the bodies, and the families of African bearers of the image of God. He was a slave trader. God saved him. You know the story, I'm sure. Maybe you don't. If you don't, it's a great story to learn. He met Jesus, and the depth of his sinful life washed over him, and he wrote a song to sing about the story of what God had done for him. Some say that the melody that Newton used was one that used to echo from the men with dark skin shackled deep in the darkness below the deck of his slave ship. And as he wrote those now famous words, this melody hummed inside of his heart. He wrote of this this grace and the work of Jesus in saving him. And he described himself as a wretch. He said Jesus was the one who found him. Jesus was the one who had unblinded him and given him sight. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I wonder if John Newton had his Bible open to John chapter 9 when he wrote that first stanza of Amazing Grace. Because so many of the themes from that first verse and the song as a whole, but that first verse in particular, we see in John 9. In fact, the last line is a direct quotation of John 9. I once was blind, but now I see. John 9 tells us of the amazing grace of Jesus in saving sinners by giving them sight. The amazing grace of Jesus in saving sinners by giving them sight. Just as I wonder if John Newton had his Bible open to John 9 while he wrote Amazing Grace, I wonder if John the Apostle had his Bible, his scroll of the prophet Isaiah next to him when he wrote the narrative of the story of his best friend Jesus so many years after Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Isaiah echoes throughout the, the Gospel of John like no other book of the Bible. And one of the things Isaiah talks about is 
the purpose of God in sending a Savior, a Messiah for His people. A Messiah with a mission to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Isaiah talks about blindness. A, a key theme in Isaiah is blindness. For example, Isaiah 42, verse 18. The Lord calls to Israel, Listen, you deaf. Look, you blind, so that you may see. God's purpose for his people is to rescue them. Isaiah 29, 18 says, On that day, the day of the Lord, when God's purpose has come into the world, the deaf will hear, and out of deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, verse 5 says that the eyes of the blind will be open. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 8, speaks of the servant of God who would be set apart to bring salvation and, and the messianic kingdom into the world. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coasts and the islands wait for his instruction. This is what God, Yahweh, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose. I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. He's speaking here of the Messiah. In order, Isaiah 42, verse 7, to open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and I will not give my glory to another. When the Messiah arrives, which Isaiah tells us, 700 years before Jesus' birth, the Messiah will bring salvation. Specifically, the Messiah will bring sight to those who are blind both physically and spiritually. And what we see all in all of the Gospels, all four of the biographies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus doing that. We see him healing the pe people who are blind. We see him bringing sight to the blind. And maybe the most powerful story along those lines is here in John 9, where we see this amazing grace of Jesus in saving sinners. By giving them sight. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to set this story up in seven scenes. Seven scenes where Jesus meets this man and does a miracle. And what this is going to do is it's going to confront us. It's going to confront us with a, a question. Are we going to respond like this man, like this blind man, in all of his desperation, in all of his weakness, in all of his neediness, in all of his poverty, in all of his blindness, or are we going to respond like people who think they have their spiritual act together? First scene here in, in, in John 9 is in verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now remember, in John chapter 8, we spent a lot of time in John 8, 
Jesus has been in the temple proclaiming himself, I am the light of the world. He's been dialoguing with the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and comes to this culminating point in John 8, 58, where he declares unequivocally, I am, I am the Lord, I am God here in human flesh in front of you. And they pick up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy, and he escapes from them. And on his way of escape, he sees this man. Here's what, here's what I think this is pointing us toward, is that we need to acknowledge our weakness and desperation. Scripture says, when he, we are weak, he is strong. God can't save strong people. I'm, I'm, am I, I'm, I'm up? Am I on again? Yeah, okay. Um, God can't save people who are strong in themselves. God doesn't save people who are strong in themselves. He can. He can. But he has to bring them to a place of weakness first. You have to acknowledge your weakness. You have to realize that your strength is not strength. This man was so desperate. He couldn't see Jesus. Literally, he couldn't see Jesus. But that wasn't the final calculation. Because in the economy of God, it's not whether we can see God or whether we can see Jesus, but whether Jesus sees us. And Jesus sees this man in his suffering. Jesus sees this man in his suffering. Romans 10.20 says, I was found by those who were not looking for me. If salvation depended upon people looking for God, nobody would be saved. But because salvation depends upon the grace of God in seeing sinners and broken people in their brokenness and in their neediness, we have hope and so does the world around us. So does the community God has called us to serve. Scene 2, the motive. Verses nine through, verses 2 through 5 of chapter 9. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I saw this a couple weeks ago. We looked just at this suffering story of this man. And we saw that where so many times people see a problem, Jesus is different. Jesus sees a person. God doesn't see your, just you, your problems. He doesn't just see your sinfulness. He doesn't just see your brokenness. He doesn't just see your, your messed up life. He sees you. He sees you. He sees you in your suffering, and he has a purpose in your suffering, in your pain. Your pain is divinely designed for the purposes of God's glory and your good. Jesus says the night's coming when no one can work. And that refers in the near term to his death on the cross. But then we see he's gloriously raised from the dead and the spirit is given into the world. So what, what he's saying there ultimately has to do with our personal death and then to the final judgment. That there is only so much time. The time is short and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the implications of this, if you are not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, turn to him. 
Come to Him. Give your life to Him. Ask Him for help and forgiveness and healing. And if you are in Christ, lean in to Him and serve. Not so that He will accept you, but because He's already seen you. He's already called you and He's already saved you. That's what we see in this third scene in verses 6 and 7, the miracle. Scene 3 is the miracle. After Jesus said these things, He spit on the ground, He made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on His eyes. Go, He told Him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So He left, washed, and came back seen. Notice here how closely this story echoes the creation narrative. In Genesis 2-7, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. What Jesus is doing here is a forward and backward miracle. He's pointing backward to creation and seeing, saying, I am the creator. I have the power to give life. I have the power to restore what's been broken. And he's pointing forward to Revelation 21.5 where God says from the throne, I am making all things new. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the Middle Ages said, just as Jesus formed the first man from the clay, so he made clay to reform the eyes of the one who was blind. When God does a work of new creation in our lives, a new work of healing, a new work of, of, of hope, ultimately salvation, and then many smaller ways throughout the course of our lifetime. It's not always fun in the middle of it. When I was in youth group, my dad was one of our Sunday school teachers. And I remember him teaching on John 9, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, do you ever, as a kid, throw mud with your friends like we do? Well, probably if you're, if you're a lady, you probably never did that. But us boys, we love dirt and we love mud. He said, do you ever get mud in your eye? If you ever had mud in your eye, you know it hurts like crazy. And the point is this. When God's working in your life, often it gets worse before it gets better. Often it gets worse before it gets better. But, but what he's calling you into, what he's calling this man into, is not to stand in the Galilean sun with the mud caked on his face, but to step under the narrow way. There's only one way. There's only one pool. There's only one Siloam. And he calls him to step into Siloam to wash the mud from his eyes so that he will be healed. And so you're in the midst of season of pain. You're in the midst of season of suffering. You're in a holding pattern. You're waiting to land the plane. You're hurting. You think, God, why is it worse? Why I gave my life to you and things have gotten worse? I trusted, entrusted this to you and it's gotten worse. It's because sometimes, often, it gets worse before it gets unimaginably better. Take the next step. Go to Siloam. Wash and be healed. So this is Jesus, after this point, Jesus drops off the scene. Jesus drops off the scene. And there begins this fourth scene, this investigation in verses 8 through 17. The man's neighbors, who had seen him before as a beggar, said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He's the one. Others were saying, No, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. It's me. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, and he smeared it on my eyes and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. 
So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, the man said. So they brought the man to the Pharisees, the man who used to be blind. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. And I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he's a prophet, the man said. His neighbors are astounded. They're not even sure that it's him. His life and his face are so different. His posture, his presentation are so different, they don't recognize him. When Jesus does a work in your life, people who know you may not recognize you at first. They may not recognize you in the salvation that God has wrought in your life. They may not recognize you in the healed state that God has brought you into. You have to tell them, no, it's me. I'm the same person I was before, except I'm brand new. In verse 9, he keeps saying, I am. Now, what's interesting, he says, it's me. But literally, in the, in the original language, this was written in Greek, it's literally, ego eimi, I am, I am. Now, that wouldn't be that interesting, except for the fact that the Gospel of John talks about that phrase, I am, all the time. It uses it in seven metaphorical statements that describe the person and work of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. It also uses it in an absolute sense, where it's Jesus claiming to be the great I am from the burning bush. We've talked about that a lot in this series because it's a key theme in John. So when this man says, and John writes his, his story and, and explains how this man identifies himself, he says, I am. What he's saying is, and what someone who's reading this would notice, is that he is so identifying with what Jesus has done for him that his life is no longer just identified by him, but it's primarily identified by Christ. One commentator says, the reader cannot help but see who the blind man is, is already representing Jesus to some degree. The noticeable difference displayed in the blind man has little to do with him and everything to do with Jesus. The man tells the story. All he knows is that this man is named Jesus. The man named Jesus. Remember, he got back. Jesus wasn't there. Jesus had, had left. Jesus was, was escaping the, the intention of the, of the Pharisees to kill him. So he does this miracle real quick, and then he, he, he pieces out. He's out. And so the man has never met Jesus other than this brief interaction. He's literally never seen Jesus. He just knows that this is the man who's done this for him. And the Pharisees, they're not, they're not on board with this. And they think, okay, we finally have him. We finally have him. Sort of like how they got Al Capone after a life of evil and crime. They got him on a technicality, right? They're like, we got him. He broke the Sabbath. 
They really think they should have him for blasphemy, that he claimed to be God, but at least they think we can get him on this lesser charge, this minor charge. But what, what we see is that he didn't actually, Jesus didn't actually break the Sabbath, both because he is Lord of the Sabbath, but also because what he did didn't violate God's law. It violated their human tradition. The rabbinic tradition had regulations against healing on the Sabbath, against kneading, K-N-E-A-D, like kneading dough or flour. And he, they said, oh, he kneaded the mud. He, 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 he formed the mud. And he anointed, there was also some regulations against anointing or doing that. So they say, you know, he, he, he broke these traditions. He broke these regulations. But Jesus hadn't broken the law of God. He'd broken the traditions of men. He'd broken a human ideology, which is no sin at all. They're livid that he's done this. He's broken the Sabbath. Because we hold our human traditions close to the heart. And I think we do similar things today. Now this is the point where I get to make everybody mad a little bit. So if you can hear me, give me a honk. All right. Um, we substitute human ideologies for God's word. I've seen, and I've seen a lot, even just in the last few months, Christians separating, dividing, arguing, and infighting over political disagreements. Now look, I think politics matter. Politics are important. But when a Christian says it's impossible for someone to be a Democrat and a Christian, then we have a problem. When someone says it's impossible to vote for Trump and be a Christian, then we have a problem. And this is the problem. We have equated political ideology with Christian theology. Now here's the thing. We should expect that in the world. The world has no thing big enough to capture their affections, and so they pour it into politics. But Christians, we should be different. We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are not captive to any political system or any partisan political point. We are not captive to any party. We are not captive to the donkey or the elephant, as many have said, but to the crucified and risen Lamb of God and Lion of Judah. The Pharisees had substituted human tradition and ideology for God's law. And I think in, a, in our church, in the American church, I don't necessarily mean Cross United, I mean the, the American church, we often do the same thing. We're too taken with the things of the flesh too many times. Augustine said so many years ago, the Pharisees, neither seen or anointed, were observing the Sabbath carnally. They were observing it by the outward fleshly appearance, but they were violating it spiritually. You can be in outward conformity to the truth and inwardly in rebellion against God. That leads to scene five here, the intimidation. John 9, 18 through 34. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees. 
and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22 is a gut punch. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, they would be banned from the synagogue. So this is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you. He said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. <laughs> this is an amazing thing, the man said. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know. That God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, there has never been heard anyone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're trying to teach us? Then they cast him out, excommunicated him from the synagogue. Notice in verse 18, it says the Jews didn't believe. This was their problem. Persistent unbelief. They were unbelievers. They had knowledge, but without faith. So they subpoena the man's parents. They, they, they kind of set up a quasi-formal investigative council. And the parents failed too. The parents don't want to alienate their religious community. That would have been a really difficult thing to deal with in that day. You would have been basically ostracized from society, from your community completely. So they thought, you know what? We cannot alienate them while also still sort of not alienating our son. So they say, that's our son. We'll confirm that. But you know what? What happened? We weren't there. We don't know. He's of age. Ask him. Let him answer the question. So they, they basically refuse to answer, and they don't sell out the Pharisees, and they don't sell out their son, but who they sell out, who they alienate, is Jesus. Because they're afraid of people. They're afraid of being excluded from some social circle. The man, though, the man... Too much has been done for him, for him to fall into that. The Pharisees demand that he give glory to God. Now what's ironic is they want him to give glory to God by saying Jesus is a sinner. But the only way God, this man can give glory to God is by saying that Jesus is not a sinner. That Jesus is utterly and totally blameless and without sin. The only person who ever has lived ever has lived, ever will live 
who lived a life completely and totally without sin, which is why in his incarnation, his perfect godhood and manhood, he is able to offer the perfect sacrifice for sinners because he is the spotless lamb. They, the, the, the guy's like, look, I don't know. I don't have all your degrees. I don't have all the diplomas on my wall. I know this. I was blind, and now I see. You all figure it out from there. And they refuse to hear it. They keep pressing him. They ask him again. He's like, look, you're so interested in this guy. Why don't you just go become his disciples? Like, it seems like you really care a lot about what he's teaching. This infuriates them. They say, no, 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 we're disciples of Moses. We know the Bible. We have the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have it memorized. And you're going to try to tell us? We know God spoke through Moses. Problem is, Jesus has already said in John 5, 46, that if anyone has believed Moses, they would believe Jesus too. Thomas Aquinas again said, since God spoke his word to Moses... The dignity of Moses came from the word of God. And so the word of God is greater than Moses. Hebrews 3.3 says, Jesus has been counted of much more glory than Moses because the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So this man ends up giving the scholars a school lesson. They're blind to the truth. They reject him. They excommunicate him from the synagogue. So this man now has been rejected by his parents, he's been rejected by his religious community, and he sits outside, literally, of the temple, and outside, figuratively, of a social community, and at that moment, on the margin, is where he meets the Messiah. Jesus doesn't come back into the temple. He meets the man on the margin. God has a special place in his heart for people who suffer. God has a special place in his heart for the poor. God has a special place in his heart for those who suffer injustice. And he meets this man on the margin. God sometimes writes his best stories on the margin. Sometimes, you know, I read a book and I'll write little notes in the margin. And that book is then valuable to me, not because of the printed copy, which I could buy another one of on Amazon, but because of the notes I've written in the margin. God sometimes writes his best stories in the margin. He meets this man, and we see in scene six the revelation, the Messiah, in verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. I believe, Lord, he was saying, and he worshipped him. The tremendous kindness of Jesus, framed by the two primary senses. In verse 1, it says Jesus saw the unseen man. Here in verse 35, it says he heard. He heard what happened. He didn't just see and he didn't just hear, but he found him. He found him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He asks him. Jesus uses this title a lot in the Gospels, the Son of Man. It's a puzzling term. What do you mean he's the Son of Man? I thought he was the Son of God. Well, yes, he is. 
The Son of Man is in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, if you want to look it up later, where you see an exalted heavenly figure, a messianic figure. So Jesus is echoing that. He's also echoing the fact that as the Son of Man, He is the incarnate God. He is God the Son and the Son of Man. Remember the man has said, the man named Jesus opened my eyes. And Jesus says, I'm not just a man, I am the Son of Man. And the man says in verse 36, who is he? Who is he? If you're using the CSB, which we use, shout out to the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. It translates the word there, sir. Who is he, sir? It says that because he recognizes who he's talking to as someone worthy of respect, but he doesn't know who it is yet. The Greek word there is kurie. The Greek word kurios, meaning Lord. That can mean like lowercase l, Lord, like sir or master. Or it can mean capital L, Lord, like Lord and God. We see here he doesn't recognize Jesus. He calls him sir. Who is he, sir? Jesus answered, you have seen him. What a profound statement. You have seen him. A man who had never seen a day in his life has now seen the Messiah. You have seen him, and he's the one speaking to you. And now the man says, I believe, sir. I believe, Lord. I believe, Curie. But he means it with all of his heart and all of the theological weight of the scripture behind it. I believe, Lord. I believe. I believe. It says he said, but the, the word there for said is an imperfect, a past ongoing action. So what it's indicating is he just kept saying it over and over. I believe. I believe, Lord. I believe. I believe. And he worshipped him. Man, what a story. The love and compassion of Jesus meeting this man on the margin. It's interesting. The story doesn't end there. Because that's this man's story. But where does it connect with our story? Where does it connect with the story of the others who were there with Jesus and the disciples? And that's where we set the seventh scene. The mission. John 9, 39 through 41. Jesus said, he gives the explanation, the whole scene, all of this. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees were with him and heard these things and asked, asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. This is a really confusing statement. But here's the bottom line. If you think you see, you're blind. And if you recognize you're blind, God will give you sight. If you think you've got it together. If you think you have what it takes. If you think that you're worthy of God's action on your behalf and God's salvation. Then you are missing out. But if you recognize your desperation. If you recognize that you need him. And you are, you are totally in debt to his grace. Then he will meet you in that place of desperation. And he will do what only he can do. When I was in college I had a professor. She was talking about Helen Keller. And uh, Helen Keller, amazing, amazing person. I remember reading a biography of her when I was a kid. 
she couldn't see and she couldn't hear and all the amazing things she did. But this this professor was, was talking about Helen Keller and just talking about how important it is that we believe in ourselves. That if we can believe in ourselves, we can do anything. And then she said, look at Helen Keller. Helen Keller did could do anything. And I piped up at one point without raising my hand and said, yeah, but she couldn't make herself see. In our book club, Gentle and Lowly, which I hope you're reading. Give me a honk if you're reading along. Okay, good. Man, this is a good book. If you haven't started or you're behind, get started. Don't, you know, you, you can, the videos are still there. If you're a little behind, like get in. That book will, will just minister to your heart. Ortland says this. It's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity. That we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Those who see are blind, but those who are blind will see. Will you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, we thank you for this story of Jesus seeing this man in his suffering and him healing him and him meeting him on the margin after everyone had rejected him, everyone had failed him, no one had stood up for him. And Jesus, you met him and you saw him and you heard him and you found him and you saved him. May we be those who recognize our blindness so that we may have true sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. And as you go, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He is with us always until the end of the age. You may go in peace. You are dismissed. God bless you.